Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside, inside the, the morgue. morgue. And welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and real autopsy techs who do real autopsies every day, Jess and Alice. And today we're dissecting one of our favorite medical examiner shows, Body of Proof, and we're diving into Season 3, Episode 2, titled Abducted. This episode is mostly about veterans, and we are going to touch on some of the realities that we see every day surrounding veterans. But with that, we're also going to give you some more insight into what being an autopsy tech does look like, so let's get into it. So our first scene... Sorry, I just lost my place immediately. I, like, scrolled down the page <laughs> really quickly Already. for some reason with my mouse. <laughs> Sorry. So our first scene, we see Dr. Megan Hunt performing an autopsy on a decedent. Right away, Megan gets negative points and a red flag for her lack of PPE. You know we love PPE on this podcast, as anyone who works in a morgue should. So she's not even wearing scrubs. She's just wearing normal clothes and an apron. But like, not only does she not have PPE, she also has her hair down. Her hair looks fantastic. Her hair looks amazing. And it's really long, but it's in her face. It's in her face. The curls, I could never. Like, my hair would not hold a curl like that. But it's down and in her face. And she's leaning over and cutting the body. And the hair is just like, it's not even like thrown back behind her shoulders. It's like. No. (laughs) If this was one of our cases and she came in and her hair was down and she was leaning into the body cavity. The ends of her hair will be soaked with blood. Ew, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, <laughs> I just thought it would be, like, annoying for me to try and, like, push my hair out of my face with gloves on. I know, like, one of our doctors does that with his glasses, and I'm like, oh, you're gonna get blood on your face. <laughs> yeah, so her hair, if your hair is long and down, you're leaning over, cutting a body, that would drive me insane. And so Jess and I, we usually have our hair, I have, mine's a little bit longer. I'm getting it cut soon, though, because it drives me nuts. I have it up in a ponytail, and then we both have, like, hair caps on, little hairnet type things, just to keep it all out of the way. And it's not the most flattering look, but... It's a look. It's a look. (laughs) I think we rock it. And it keeps blood and other specimen out of my hair. Keeps my hair out of body cavities. So this episode is a part two of the previous episode, where a serial killer was removing the spleens from his victims. I will say the spleen is probably my favorite. Actually, the kidneys are my favorite to remove, but the spleen is a close second. It's just so easy. I think so. it's because the kidneys are really satisfying because they sit in their little sack and you're like peeling it away. Yeah. We sound insane. It but so it, it, it's So yeah, it was just your spleen kind of sits on like the side of your stomach and on your left side. It's really it's probably like one of the easier organs to get out, which is probably why I love it. Also, sometimes it just looks so cute and small. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Do you ever think that sometimes there's something wrong with us? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the spleen for me is probably the easiest evisceration. Would you say it's like... Yeah, it's the easiest because it's only held together at the very bottom. Like, there's nothing on top of it Mm -hmm. other than, like, the stomach just laying on it. Yeah. So it's just easy to, like, peel and cut away. Yeah. The liver. I think the liver is the hardest to take out. Oh, my God. The liver. Yeah, the liver is a struggle because it's... You have to get the diaphragm out of the way. There's so much attached to it. The diaphragm, then you have residual stomach and pancreas there. Mm -hmm. That one definitely took me the longest to get a handle on how to eviscerate properly and efficiently. But I I think I've come a long way. Mm -hmm. I've gotten better at it. But still, spleen is top two. (laughs) (laughs) Spleen is definitely the easiest organ to take out. Yeah. 
So anyway, I love how I said a serial killer was removing spleens, and then I immediately went into, yeah, I like to do that. (laughs) Oh, God. So Megan thought that the killer was putting something else into the place of the spleen, and so she starts her Y incision on this decedent, peels back the skin flap on the left side of the abdomen, and when she opens the body, she finds a bomb where the spleen should be. She also doesn't seem afraid to like get in there and touch the bomb. She just goes right in. I don't know if there was something that we missed from because I didn't watch the previous episode. I didn't watch the previous episode either. And maybe <laughs> it's like she knew it wouldn't detonate somehow. But she was just like, oh, a bomb. And I'm like, get out. What are you doing? She was very casual about it. Yeah, she was super casual. I would not have stuck around to see what was happening. So she then gets a call from who she thinks is her daughter. And she answers the phone with her gloves still on. The gloves that she just opened this body with. I don't even usually bring my phone into the autopsy room. I will have my phone on me, but it's always in my pant pocket with layers of PPE over. Yeah, that I was just going to say, that's the only time I'll keep it on. Because like, like we said in, I think it was our autopsy of Jane Doe episode, we do like to play music. Mm-hmm. So if one of our phones is playing music, I'll have my phone in the room. Under layers and layers of PPE and scrubs. Or like set aside on a desk somewhere. Yeah. Like far away from what we're doing. I'm not just going to run over and answer it with gloves on. So Megan answers the phone, expecting it to be her daughter, Lacey, but she is startled when the person on the phone addresses her as Dr. Hunt and very clearly isn't her daughter. It's the killer from the previous episode saying Dr. Hunt stuck her nose where it didn't belong and so she kidnapped her daughter. The killer says she has to do what she says or else she's going to kill her daughter. The killer says that she knows that Dr. Hunt knows why she was killing all the men in the previous episode, and Dr. Hunt said that she did, and they were being used as guinea pigs to implant the perfect bomb. So apparently this device doesn't show up on x-ray. I think we learn later that it's because it's not metal. Like, is there no metal at all in it? Yeah, they talk about it later on in the episode, and like when we get there, it'll make sense. But when I was first watching this, I'm like, how does it not show up on x-ray? Like, there's clearly metal in there, and that would definitely, like, give something off. Right? There was something, like, lighting up mm-hmm. in... There was a was, little... Yeah, it had a little red button. It had a little button, device like a that was flashing in the abdomen when she opened it, and that's how she knew it was a bomb. So the killer deactivates the bomb inside the body that Dr. Hunt is just autopsying, and then she says that she will release her daughter, Lacey, if Dr. Hunt does what she says. If Dr. Hunt tells anyone about what she is doing the killer will kill Lacey. So Dr. Hunt tells the killer that the police already know that someone was helping a man named Dr. Wallace, who was in the previous episode, to kill all these men. The police knew that there was someone else because Dr. Hunt said that she didn't think one person could have committed all these crimes alone. Cut to Dr. Kate Murphy watching the news covering the events of the previous episode where the police staged a raid to apprehend Dr. Wallace, who was involved in the serial killing of at least six people. Wallace was killed, but they saved the life of his victim. Kate Murphy then gets a call from an investigator saying the FBI are unhappy that they were shut out of the Wallace investigation. So now the FBI will be going over all the details of the case with a fine tooth comb. Dr. Murphy took credit for all the cases being solved and now has to make sure all the loose ends are tied up or she will be the one to take the fall if the FBI find anything that they might have missed in the investigation. Murphy calls Curtis Brumfield, who has just stopped in to see Hunt while doing her autopsy. So Dr. Murphy goes to see what Dr. Hunt is up to, and Dr. Hunt quickly covers up the body that she is autopsying when she walks in. Murphy says that she hopes she didn't unfairly dismiss any concerns that Dr. Hunt had had about the serial killer case, and Dr. Hunt quickly says, oh no, she didn't. Murphy then asks about Dr. Hunt's theory that something was being implanted in the victims, and Hunt brushes it off, saying it was just a theory. 
Murphy walks over to the body and uncovers it, and it looks like Hunt had already removed the surgical mesh and the bomb that had been here before. And I know we didn't watch the episode before this, but the killers were putting bombs in these men. How were they not found before? Like, they did autopsies on the other victims, right? If they were guinea pigs and they had something implanted, wouldn't they find that and report it? I was wondering that. How, if they were all autopsied before, how did they not find anything? It's a, a plot hole there. A little plot hole there. Or it's a, I didn't watch the first episode and I missed a detail <laughs> hole. Dr. Murphy gets a call in her cell. While she is distracted, Dr. Hunt picks up the wrapped bomb that she had taken out of the decedent and puts it in her purse. Just super cash. I don't think that I would put a bomb in my purse. I don't think I would either. Even if it was deactivated. Even if it was deactivated. But I've also, one, I've never had a daughter. And two, I've never had that daughter kidnapped. (laughs) So maybe I would. I'm going to give her a little credit here. (laughs) So the call that Dr. Murphy received was from the police. And they were requesting an Emmy at a homicide scene. She tells Hunt to go to the scene. And she'll be handling the autopsy that Hunt had started from there. Cut to the crime scene, and Detective Sullivan tells Hunt that the victim was a 15 to 16-year-old and a Caucasian female. Hunt panics for a moment, thinking that it might be her daughter, Lacey. She asks Detective Sullivan if they have a name on the victim, and he says that they're waiting for her to examine the body. Another red flag, because it's definitely not in the job description of a medical examiner to do scene work. It's not even in our job description to really go to scenes. Now, that's not saying we've never been to a scene, because we both have. We just don't have the opportunity to go out to like every scene, like the investigators, because we're usually in the morgue. That's our our daily duties are doing autopsies in the morgue. It's not scene work. But like, yes, we both have been to a handful of scenes when we were first starting out to kind of see like both sides of it. And like the one scene that I went to was a home death and he was like a bigger guy. And I remember we had to bring him down the stairs. Oh my gosh. Like on the stretcher that he was on. And that was hard. I would imagine. I don't think I had to even I was just an observer at the scenes that I went to it was just it was like my first week or two that I was there and I was just along to learn I don't think I had any hands-on in there at all so Dr. Hunt walks over and hesitates still thinking that it might be Lacey so she then asks Ethan who's also from the Emmy's office and they're helping the investigation to turn the body over Ethan protests at first saying he hasn't done the GSR kit but Hunt tells him to just turn the body over So GSR is gunshot residue, and we've never had to do a gunshot residue kit on a victim yet, but we do have these in our morgue. In the kit, there is a carbon adhesive stick. It kind of looks like a thicker chapstick tube, and you roll this over the victim's fingertips and the skin, and it will detect the presence of distinctive chemicals that are deposited on the person's clothing or skin when a gun is fired. GSR kits are considered reliable evidence and will most likely always be admitted for evidence in court. But because Dr. Hunt tells him to turn the body over before doing the GSR kit, Ethan does, and it is not Lacey. But Detective Sullivan recognizes the victim as Alyssa Wallace, Dr. Wallace's, a.k.a. the serial killer accomplice from the previous episode, daughter. There is a green flag here because they used her student ID to positively ID the victim by comparing the ID photo to her. We do this all the time for our cases, and this is probably the most common way to positively ID a person. And we can use their driver's license or a student ID, employee ID, to make sure that the person is the correct person. There were also tire tracks found a little further from the scene. And then the killer, while Dr. Hunt is doing the investigation, the killer calls again from Lacey's phone, and Dr. Hunt tells the killer that they are sick for killing this child. The killer said they had to let Hunt know that they were serious. They ask if Hunt has the device, and then the killer tells her to go to a parking garage, and she'll get more instructions from there. Hunt says she can't go now, because if she leaves the scene, people will get suspicious. The killer then tells her to get there by 7. 
We see the killer then hang up and give Lacey a sip of water. Lacey asks why she is doing this, and she says she's doing it for her husband, who was the love of her life. He served three tours in Afghanistan, and when he came home, he needed help, but he killed himself because no one was there to help him. She says she lost everything, and now his sacrifice won't be forgotten. Lacey says killing people won't bring her husband back, but the killer says it's the only way to get things done. Unfortunately, we do see a fair number of veterans who die by suicide, and... It's something we've both noticed. It's tragic, and I think it does, unfortunately, like the killer says, I don't want to be on the side of the killer, but they they go through a lot, and they have a lot of trauma, and they don't have, they don't get the necessary support that they should get. Obviously, I've never been in the military. I don't have plans on going into the military, but I know it's traumatic right. when they come back. It's hard to process what they've been through and then readjust to society. There are resources out there, but I don't think that enough people know about those resources to get the help. So unfortunately, we do see, like Alice said, a fair number of veteran suicides and how the suicides occur. It's a multitude of things, but it's sad to see. And we, once again, I know we provided resources in our Jane Doe episode uh, for suicide awareness and depression. We will again, provide some more resources for any mental help. If uh, you or a loved one are experiencing anything and you need to reach out and talk to someone, we'll provide resources. Because like I said, we love you guys. We love your loved ones. And you matter and you're important. And you should stick around. You are loved. So remember that. Back to the episode. So back in the scene, Ethan sticks what looks like a meat thermometer in the victim and says that the liver is still warm, so she can't have been dead for more than three hours. And I have to say... I have never once checked the temperature of a liver. Do they do that? So I did a little research. So I personally, I have done rectal temperatures and it's not like, I know our job is not glamorous and this is like one of the least glamorous parts of our job (laughs) doing rectal temps. And even that isn't an exact science because ambient temperature comes into play and it's not a definitive factor to measure time since death. But checking temperature like this is really only when we suspect like hypo or hyperthermia. If it's super cold outside, I know for the one that I did, he was found outside and it was super cold at night and it had just rained and he was in wet clothes and it was like 30 degrees outside where he was found. So we did a rectal temperature and I think it was suspected that it was hypothermia. The thermometer, it was going down, like it wasn't even registering. There was no like temperature to register because it was so cold. So I did some research and checking the liver temp is actually a more accurate reflection of the body's core temperature. And so is a rectal temperature. Right. But really, instead of like stabbing into her like he did, he should have made a small incision and then pass the thermometer through the tissue of the liver. And a meat thermometer is not pointy. It's a it's a blunt end. Okay. That's what I was wondering. Because I was like, there is. I was wondering. I was like, this can't be proper procedure. <laughs> he just has a meat thermometer. Maybe we didn't see him make an incision. But it did not look like there he was didn't make an incision. He didn't make an incision. <laughs> Jess is like, no. <laughs> Checking temperature like this is when algamortis comes into play, too. So this is the change in body temperature to match the ambient temperature which is just the outside temperature. So your body temp is normally 37 degrees Celsius or 96 degrees Fahrenheit. And after death, the body temp will drop one degree Celsius in the first two hours and then decrease by one degree after that, every hour after. 
So once the body reaches ambient temperature, all bets are off on trying to get an accurate read. And I found a podcast it's called Coroner Talk, and he has a whole episode about determining time of death, and I got some of the information here from him, so I'll link that in our show notes. I haven't listened to it yet, but I'm sure it's amazing, and it's going to go on my list of shows to listen to now. I was going to say, I'm adding that to my list. I love that. But yeah, so the few times that we've had to do this, we have to work really fast in order to get an accurate read for what their body temp is. So that it was determined that within the three hours that she died in that period of time, her father had also died. So he couldn't have been the one to he do it. He couldn't have been the killer, like they think. So Ethan says there must be someone else involved, and Dr. Hunt tells him not to repeat that to anyone else, including the police. She says she doesn't have time to explain, but makes him promise not to say anything. When the detectives come... Hunt lies about the time of death, saying it was last night, not within three hours. Ethan goes along with it and says it was the girl's father, probably, that killed her and dumped her in the park. The detectives say this goes against Dr. Wallace's pattern because all of his previous victims were adults, they weren't shot like she was, and it doesn't make sense why he would kill his own daughter. Sullivan knows Hunt is lying. As Hunt and Ethan walk away, she tells him that he has to do the external exam, run talks, get scrapings for trace evidence, and do a sexual assault kit as soon as possible. She leaves and says that she's going to talk to the only man alive who might know who killed the girl. Cut to a hospital scene, and we see a man in a hospital bed. The man, Mr. Simmons, recognizes her as the one who saved his life in the previous episode. There, she performed an emergency surgery and saved him from being the next victim. She says that Dr. Wallace wasn't working alone and that someone else was forcing him to do these operations. Simmons didn't see anyone else when he was attacked. The last thing he remembers was a needle getting stuck in him from behind and then he woke up in the hospital. Ethan calls from the morgue and says that he hadn't found any foreign DNA yet, but there was cellulose under Alyssa's fingernails that could have been from anything derived from plants, fabric, paper, building materials. And Ethan is doing scanning electron micrograph to try to narrow it down, but that will take three hours. So scanning electron microscopy or micrograph is a beam of electrons scanned over the surface of a solid object, and this microscope uses electrons instead of light to form an image. Another fun fact about electron microscopy is that this is the only method available to confirm the presence of GSR particles. Other methods, like atomic absorption, only measure the amount of bulk elements present and not their form. So, Hunt says that it will be too late and asks him to find something else. Hunt doesn't want Murphy or Curtis involved, so only Ethan can do the scan. Detective Sullivan is behind Hunt, and he heard her whole conversation. She tries to play it off like she's just at the hospital visiting Simmons to see how he's doing, but Sullivan knows that Hunt lied to him about the time of death of the park victim. He's been a cop for 20 years, and he can tell that the girl died much more recently than what she said, and so there's no way that the father killed her. She begs him to leave it alone and says if he doesn't, then they'll kill her daughter, but he says he can't leave it alone. Hunt ends up telling him everything and says that whoever is actually behind the killings had kidnapped Wallace's daughter to force him to be involved, just like they're doing to her daughter now. She shows him the device that she had taken out of the last victim at autopsy. She's holding it in this bloody towel with the bomb wrapped inside it, and I, again, I don't know if I would just be casually holding a bomb like this out in the open. I definitely would not, even if the killer said they deactivated it. I would not trust them. I would them. not trust them. They're a killer. I, yeah. I don't know how I would have handled it. Like, again, like I said, I don't have a daughter, and that daughter has never been kidnapped because she doesn't exist. So I don't know what her mental state is right now, but it's clearly not good because she's carrying a bomb exactly. around inside a towel in her purse. 
Like we mentioned before, there's almost no metal because it was implanted internally, which would explain why it didn't show up on X-ray for some reason, so it also wouldn't show up in a strip search. There must be some type of other material. It looked like a silicone-like implant to me. Silicone, yeah. Yeah, it looked like... And silicone doesn't show up on X-ray. Yeah, it looked like a silicone implant to me, from what I saw. So if Hunt doesn't give this device back, her daughter will be killed. But if she does give it back, many other people will die as a result. So Sullivan asks her what she's planning on doing. She's hoping to find the killer before the drop time. Sullivan won't let that killer blow anyone up on the plane, but he also won't let them hurt Lacey, so he's going to help. Sullivan asks his partner for help, and they go see Hunt scanning the implanted device with some kind of magnifying device that's blowing the larger image on the screen. And it kind of, to me, it looks similar to like a handheld ultrasound machine. Yeah. The wand, yeah. It looks like that. I know it's not that, but that's what it looked like. It did remind me of that, too. I was trying to find the words to describe it, and that's exactly what it reminded me of. And she says that there are two liquids in separate chambers that explode when mixed. So she's guessing that one is potassium-rich compound, which was found in all of the victim's previous blood work. So potassium nitrite is a transparent white colorless crystalline powder and is used to make explosives, fireworks, matches, and rocket fuel. So this would make sense that they would have potassium in his blood since he has a bomb inside him. And high levels of potassium nitrate can interfere with the ability of blood to carry oxygen and can even cause death. And potassium chlorate is also used in explosives. Potassium itself, it also reacts violently when in contact with oxidizers or water. So when potassium does come in contact with water, acids, or alcohols, it produces an exothermic reaction that involves the release of flammable hydrogen gas. This is not appropriate to say, probably, but this whole time thinking of like the bombs inside of people. If anybody grew up watching Spongebob, there's an episode where there's bombs inside of pies and Spongebob eats a pie and Squidward is freaking out thinking that he ate a bomb and he's like waiting for Spongebob to explode the whole day. (laughs) The whole time I was watching this episode, I just kept hearing that one character and he's like, these are bombs from a bomb factory. They're bombs. (laughs) They're bombs. (laughs) And I'm just like... (laughs) So that was my inappropriate segue of the day. But also, so as we've mentioned before, my boyfriend Costa is a PhD postdoc chemist so I asked him a lot of chemistry questions and so I asked him about the potassium and all the stuff involved in this bomb because it seemed like a lot of chemistry and he he confirmed a lot of what we're going to talk about but he also texted me just before I am currently reading it off of my phone and he said fun fact the bomb eightier beetle has two separate compartments in its abdomen when it sprays these liquids on a predator it makes a little explosion so I wonder if the killer was very into insects and knew that about the bomb eighty or beetle. That's so cool to think about. It's also terrifying to think about. I know. <laughs> Where do these bugs live? Because I'm never going there. I also need to know if Costa just knew this fact about beetles or if he Googled it and it came up because I never knew <laughs> that he was into beetles. That makes sense if this bomb had those two separate chambers and when it detonated, those two chemicals reacted and that's what made the bomb go off. Yeah. Very interesting. 
So Hunt is diluting this out with saline to keep it from detonating. So saline is an inert substance, generally not reactive, and when you dilute a substance, you decrease the rate of reaction. So thank you to Costa, our honorary Inside the Morgue chemist, for giving us insight into this because I knew nothing. I was literally texting him an hour before we were recording. I'm like, wait, tell me more about potassium. So Sullivan tells his partner to put together a team that's willing to work off the books and not ask questions. The team will follow Hunt when she meets the killer to drop the device off, but they can't get too close or get caught or Lacey will be killed. Sullivan puts a location device that he can track into Hunt's purse, cuts to Hunt in the parking garage alone with her purse and the device inside. Sullivan and the team are farther away watching through binoculars. If they lose a suspect and they blow up a plane, they will both be criminally charged. Hunt gets a text from the killer telling her to start walking down. She moves out of sight of the team and is being tracked only by the device in her purse. They track her moving down to the lower level of the parking garage in the stairwell. When Hunt gets to the lower level, the elevator opens, but no one's in it. She gets another text telling her to keep walking. A white van approaches her, and a man who Hunt recognizes is Carl Simmons, the man she saved with the emergency surgery in the previous episode, jumps out of the van and tases her. He puts a rag over her mouth, and I'm I'm assuming there was like chloroform or something on it, and they speed off in the van. Cut to the autopsy of Alyssa Wallace, and Ethan is suturing the body, finishing up the autopsy, and I thought it was cool. They showed like a super quick glimpse of this. They use the same autopsy needles that we do. That's a good catch. I didn't notice that. So the needles that we use they're called double curved needles and these needles like vary in sizes from size zero to four and four is smaller and shorter so we use a size zero because we want like a better grip on it so i do give a green flag for this because they showed a proper autopsy needle and i thought that was cool that is a good detail so murphy and curtis rush in asking where hunt is and ethan doesn't know and asks why Murphy is angry because Hunt knew she wanted to be kept updated if there was any more developments in the Wallace case. So she thinks that she should have been told by Hunt or Ethan about the homicide they brought in, considering that it was Dr. Wallace's daughter. Ethan tells her to take it up with Hunt, and Curtis says that the time of death that Hunt reported doesn't match any of the labs. Murphy says to tell them what's really going on or she won't sign for Ethan's fellowship. Ethan confesses that Hunt realized someone else was putting Dr. Wallace up to the killings, but he didn't know why, and she wanted him to keep it a secret. Murphy tries to call Hunt, and it goes right to voicemail. We then see Hunt wake up in the van while Carl is driving. The police are following behind further away while still tracking Hunt through the device in her purse. Hunt is handcuffed and asks Carl where her daughter is. Carl says Yvonne is keeping her safe and sound, so we're assuming Yvonne is this killer lady. Hunt realizes that the killer is a woman and that she was Dr. Wallace's chief nurse. Yvonne and Carl had met at a VA survivors group two years ago, and they've been planning this since. He says all the other men they put bombs in were a test run for putting the bomb in him. If Dr. Hunt hadn't saved Carl in the previous episode, he would have been on a flight by now, and his and Yvonne's plan would have been in action. He says, ever since Iraq and Afghanistan, 6,000 have died in combat, but over 6,000 veterans die by suicide each year, men that he had considered brothers. They'd all been willing to put their lives on the line for their country, but when they got back, their country didn't help them. Hunt asked why he killed six other veterans then, and he says they were, quote, shells, and they were dead inside like him. He thinks he did them a favor. Hunt asked why he killed Dr. Wallace's 14-year-old daughter, and he says war is accepting that change requires desperate measures. The police team is still following the van, and they see them pulling up to a one-story industrial building. Sullivan says to get the team ready and to look into everything they can about the building so they can hide and cover. 
Hunt and Carl arrive at the building, and he takes off her handcuffs. Hunt finds Lacey on the ground and rushes over to her. They didn't hurt Lacey, but Hunt looks at her insulin pump and notices that she is hyperglycemic, which just means there's an excess of glucose in the blood, and she desperately needs her insulin or she could die from diabetic shock. Hunt runs to grab her purse, which has the insulin in it, but Yvonne has already grabbed it, and then she pulls out a gun on Hunt as she tries to grab the purse from her. Hunt says she did what she was asked to do, and she brought the bomb. But then Yvonne reveals that this was never about bringing the device back, which they already assumed she was going to sabotage anyway, and that they have other bombs. They brought her there to pick up where Dr. Wallace left off, and they're going to force her to put a bomb in Carl. Hunt sees a makeshift operating table in the building and says that she won't do it. But if she doesn't, they'll let her daughter die without her insulin. We've worked on a bunch of cases where people have died due to diabetes. We've seen a bunch of cases where like people are missing toes, yeah. whole feet. So when we suspect that somebody has died of diabetes, we can send out toxicology and we'll specifically test for electrolytes and glucose to get those levels back. And if they're in like a really high range between like 200 and 300, even higher than that, their sugar is way too high for them. So there's too much glucose in them. So then that confirms that, yes, diabetes played a role in death. That is true. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. We have seen a certain amount of deaths due to diabetes, and they, yeah, there are interesting autopsy findings. So Yvonne says that killing Dr. Wallace's daughter was the worst thing she ever had to do, but she's willing to do it again if she has to. Hunt then agrees to do the surgery. The police arrive and set up further away from the building. They set up a plan to try to get inside the building. Meanwhile, inside, they set up a makeshift surgery. Yvonne will administer propofol while Hunt intubates. Propofol is a type of anesthesia. Yvonne was a surgical nurse for eight years, so she'll know the second that Hunt does anything wrong. We see the police surrounding the building, and they break in, but they only see a white van. So it turns out that the killers had switched it out and had an identical van, and that the police are at the wrong building. Inside this identical van, they find the tracker that was in Hunt's purse, and the killers had put it in this identical van to throw the police off. Sullivan also finds Lacey's insulin in the van, meaning that it isn't even in Hunt's purse anymore. So even though Hunt is there with Lacey and she does the surgery, she still won't be able to give Lacey her insulin. So back in the other building where the surgery is taking place, Hunt opens Carl's stitches on his side with surgical scissors. I didn't even make a note. Was it on the correct side of his body that they started doing the operation? Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. I think it was. I think it was. I think it was on his left side. Because she was cutting, if the body's laying and she's on his right side, I think she was cutting over the body, so it had to be on his left side. Anyway, guys, your spleen is on your left side. If you don't know, now you know. Just so you know. Your personal left, but if someone's looking at you, it's on their right. Which gets confusing anatomically, because like anatomical right and left are like opposites when you're looking at it. Which gets So like if I take out someone's right lung, it's on my left side while I'm looking at them, but it's their right. If you ever meet me and I get confused with rights and lefts, don't make fun of me. It's because I'm an anatomist. I don't know my (laughs) rights and lefts either. You gotta do like the little L with your fingers to see. I still have to do that. See which is left. No lie. My boyfriend Dom will tell you I still have to do that sometimes. (laughs) Hunt opens Carl's stitches on his side. We're assuming his left side because that's where your spleen is with surgical scissors. This made me think about when we have to cut through sutures in cases that we get from Gift of Life after they've done like transplants or donation surgeries. Sometimes cutting through those sutures kills your blade or your own scissors and it dulls them really fast so usually their sutures are down the entire like midline of the body so there's a lot more to cut away than what she's cutting here 
But yeah, I have noticed that they can like dull a blade because I don't know like what type of suture they use, but they have. I mean, specifically like the Gift of Life facility in our area, they have like a really thick black suture. Like I know it's um like a surgical suture. It's not the nylon we use for autopsies. It's different. Yeah, I agree. We then see her put the bomb in surgical mesh and just kind of like shove it in where she like made an incision and okay I've never had to implant anything in someone let alone a bomb but yeah she kind of was just kind of rough with that bomb I feel like there should have been more to it she shoves it in and then she's like cool we're done yeah she like really smushed it in there I wouldn't have wanted to smush a bomb or anything inside of someone but then she just sutures the wound back up Yvonne tells Hunt to give Carl an ampule of physostigmine because she wants him to wake up quicker Physostigmine affects chemicals in the body that control the signal sent to the nervous system, to the muscles, to activate muscle movement. So as Hunt does this, Yvonne tells her to stop wondering when the police will get there. They had found the tracker in her purse and put it inside an identical van. And Yvonne and Carl have the police on a wild goose chase. We see the police driving again and Sullivan's partners on the phone with the department informing them about what had happened. He says the FAA is shutting down air traffic within a 100-mile radius and then going wider as time goes by in case the plan goes awry and they end up getting a bomb on the plane. He says they can also probably count on being fired. They also put out a search for Dr. Hunt, but haven't gotten anything back yet. Back at the, quote, operating building, Hunt is furious and rips off her gloves to go get the insulin out of her purse for Lacey. But there isn't any because the killers took that too. Carl got rid of all of the things in her purse in case there was any other tracker anywhere inside. None of that matters, though, because after Carl blows up the plane, she still needs to spread their message. Yvonne can't spread the message if police know who she is. So, cut to the Sullivan getting a call from Dr. Murphy. She has been informed by the police that Hunt has gone missing. She tells Sullivan that they found cellulose under Alyssa Wallace's fingernails at autopsy, and they were able to ID it with wood dust. It's from teak and mahogany trees, which don't go around there, and it also looked like it was ground to a dust. It looks like she was held somewhere that they milled or built things out of imported wood. The detective says that one of the men on the list of veterans that they had investigated worked at a mill right near the airport. The police change route and head to that building. Back at the building where Hunt and Lacey are being kept, they are still waiting for Carl to wake up. Hunt tells Lacey to listen carefully and then shows her a scalpel that she has hidden up her sleeve. Carl starts to wake up and says it hurts like hell, but asks if they are okay with time. Yvonne says yes, the flight is in four hours. God, having had a weird impromptu surgery, and now he's about to just get on a plane. I know he's about, he's like planning on dying on the plane, but I don't like flying to begin with. Waking up after a surgery. Four hours. I feel like you should have already been at the airport. I know, that too. I would have been there already. I am one of those people. I'm just a very, very prompt person, so I get there like five hours early. I am one of those people. I would rather sit and relax at my gate. Know that my gate is there. Know that my gate is there. <laughs> I would rather get like food and a coffee at the airport, sit there with my book or my Netflix yep. or whatever I'm doing, and know that I'm there and I'm okay on time. Like that's... Absolutely. Like yeah. I don't care if TSA takes like five minutes. I'd rather yeah. still get there with like two hours to spare yeah because i've been on the other end of that where i've shown up a little too late and tsa took forever and then i missed my flight and that was the worst so i do anything i can to not go through that i also haven't flown in forever but back at the show hunt cuts Lacey's ties with the scalpel that she has up her sleeve and tells her to run when she says to and gets someplace safe where she can call 911. 
Yvonne goes to help Carl up from the makeshift surgery table, and that's when Dr. Hunt runs over to try to stab her. Yvonne turns around in time to stop her, and that's when Hunt yells for Lacey to run. But Lacey is too weak to run, and Hunt and Yvonne continue to fight. Yvonne ends up knocking Hunt over and is able to pull out her gun. And she's about to shoot Hunt when someone else shoots Yvonne. And then we see Sullivan and his partner arrived just in time. Carl tries to make an escape to the car, but the police surround him while he's in his car. Carl says he just wanted to be heard, and Sullivan says that there are better ways, and that they can't let him out of there. Carl then activates the explosive inside of him and blows himself up in the car. But, like, just the somehow car. doesn't injure anybody else at the scene. Just that car. And if this was an explosive that was going to, like, I mean, any explosive would take down a plane, I guess. But I was expecting just, like, a bigger explosion. Sullivan was close enough to the car to, like, talk to him. And he just, like, stood there and watched the flames go up. Mm -hmm. But I would have thought there would have been more of an... Not that I want anybody else to be heard in the show, but I just... I was just expecting more. It was kind of, like... Realistically, I think meh. it would have been more dramatic. <laughs> and I give a red flag for this because that explosion definitely would have injured Sullivan. He was so close to the car. He was literally standing less than five feet from the car. He was close enough to talk to them. And he left, like, unscathed. But he had, like, a dramatic walk away, like, with the flames. Even so, like, he would have been knocked to his ass. And he just stood there and took it. His ears would have been ringing. At the very least, like, he would have been in pain. After this, Hunt is at the hospital with Lacey, who is recovering. Hunt thinks Lacey should see a therapist to talk about the traumatic experiences she's been through, which, yes, all for that. Lisa says that when she starts falling asleep, she feels like she is back in the warehouse again. But she says even then, even when she's dreaming, she never gets too scared because in her dreams, her mom comes to save her, just like she did in real life. And then we all say aww, aww. and shed a little cute tear. The single tear. A single tear for a wholesome mother-daughter moment. I know that there weren't a lot of autopsy scenes like I thought this episode would have had, but there was still mm -hmm. a lot of forensic topics that they covered, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Lots of anatomy. As always, we love to find true crime, weird stories that relate to the episodes that we watch, and I think that we really hit the nail on the head with this one. So, Timothy McVeigh, a former U.S. Army soldier, was convicted on 15 counts of murder and conspiracy for his role in the 1995 terrorist bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. On April 19, 1995, just after 9 a.m., a massive truck bomb exploded outside of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building. The blast collapsed the north face of the nine-story building, and it instantly killed more than 100 people, and it trapped dozens more inside the rubble. Emergency crews raced to Oklahoma City from across the country, and when the rescue effort finally ended two weeks later, the death toll stood at 168 people, including 19 young children who were in the building's daycare center at the time of the blast. Oh my god, that's so sad. It is horrible. That's horrific. On April 21st, the massive manhunt for suspects in the worst terrorist attack ever committed on U.S. soil resulted in the capture of Timothy McVeigh, a 27-year-old former U.S. Army soldier who matched an eyewitness description of a man seen at the scene of the crime. On the same day, Terry Nichols, an associate of McVeigh's, surrendered at Harrington, Kansas, after learning that the police were looking for him. Both men were found to be members of a radical right-wing survivalist group based in Michigan, and on August 8th, John Fortier, who knew of McVeigh's plan to bomb the federal building, agreed to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence. Two days later, a grand jury indicted McVeigh and Nichols on murder and conspiracy charges. While still in his teens, 
McVeigh acquired a penchant for guns and began honing survivalist skills he believed would be necessary in the event of a Cold War showdown with the Soviet Union. Lacking direction after high school, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and proved to be a disciplined and meticulous soldier. It was during this time that he befriended Terry Nichols, a fellow soldier who was 13 years older than him, and he shared his survivalist interests. In early 1991, McVeigh served in the Persian Gulf War and was decorated with several medals for a brief combat mission. Despite these honors, he was discharged from the Army at the end of the year, one of the many casualties of the U.S. military downsizing that came after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Perhaps because of the end of the Cold War, McVeigh shifted his ideology from a hatred of foreign communist governments to a suspicion of the U.S. federal government, including its new elected leader, Democrat Bill Clinton. He had successfully campaigned for the presidency on a platform of gun control. The August of 1992 shootout between federal agents and survivalist Randy Weaver at his cabin in Idaho, in which Weaver's wife and son were killed, followed by the April 19, 1993 inferno near Waco, Texas, which killed some 80 Branch Davidians, deeply radicalized McVeigh, Nichols, and their associates. In early 1995, Nichols and McVeigh planned an attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City, which housed, among other federal agencies, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, ATF, the agency that had launched the initial raid on the Branch Davidian compound in 1993. On April 19, 1995, the two-year anniversary of the disastrous end to the Waco standoff, McVeigh parked a Ryder rental truck loaded with a diesel-fueled fertilizer bomb outside the Alfred A. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City and fled. Minutes later, the massive bomb exploded, killing 168 people. On June 2, 1997, McVeigh was convicted on 15 counts of murder and conspiracy, and on August 14th, under the unanimous recommendation of the jury, he was sentenced to die by lethal injection. In December 2000, McVeigh asked a federal judge to stop all appeals of his convictions and to set a date for his execution by lethal injection at the U.S. Penitentiary at Terre Haute, Indiana. McVeigh's execution in June 2001 was the first federal death penalty to be carried out since 1963. Michael Fortier was sentenced to 12 years in prison and fined $200,000 for failing to warn authorities about McVeigh's bombing plans. In the federal trial, Terry Nichols was also found guilty on one count of conspiracy and eight counts of involuntary manslaughter and was sentenced to life in prison. In a later Oklahoma state trial, he was charged with 160 counts of first-degree murder, one count of first-degree manslaughter for the death of an unborn child, and one count of aiding in the placement of a bomb near a public building. And on May 26, 2004, he was convicted of all charges and sentenced to 160 consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Wow. I was wondering why they were only charged with eight counts of involuntary manslaughter, like 15 counts of murder, when like 160 people died. So, and that conviction came years after, much later. Yeah. Which like I know the court system is not a fast system. Yeah. I also have not worked in the court system or I've never the, worked in the courts. In law. <laughs> I've never at been all. to court. So there's probably something that I am missing here. So if you know, please let us know. But So at the end of this episode, we tallied a total of two green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of Body of Proof does not pass in our terms of forensic accuracy. And that brings us to an end of our episode. 
Thanks for hanging out and listening to us. If you enjoy our podcast and if you want to learn more about forensics and true crime, keep on listening. And you can follow us on Instagram at Inside the Morgue Pod. So follow us and DM us with any questions. You can also email us too. And remember, if you're going to die, do it strangely and support your local autopsy technicians. We'll be back next week with a brand new dissection. Bye. Bye.